Hello, bonjour, tante. I'm Paula Simons, and this is Alberta Unbound. Darren Hagen is a man of many talents. He's a musician, a composer, a sound designer. He's an actor, a playwright, a director, and the artistic director of his own Edmonton-based theater company. He's an essayist, a documentary maker, a podcaster. And he's also a social historian who researches and writes about Alberta's complicated queer history. It's a long journey for a kid who grew up in a trailer court outside of Rocky Mountain House and who got his start as drag queen Gloria Hole at Edmonton's legendary flashback nightclub. As Pride Month draws to a close, I'm proud to welcome to Alberta Unbound our glorious and unsinkable Edmonton Queen, the one and only Darren Hagen. Darren Hagen, as some people will know because you have written about it quite a bit, you grew up in Rocky Mountain House, which is a very particular part of Alberta. And I wonder if you could tell people who are not as familiar with your works, what was it like growing up in Rocky Mountain House in the I guess the 1960s and 1970s. 1970s mostly. Um, yeah. Well, you know, I mean, while you're while you're growing up, you always think, "Oh, this is the worst place in the world." My family is evil, and oh, I'm so hard done by. And now that I've gotten out in the real world and I've heard some actual horror stories, I realized that you know, had it a lot better than I thought I had. Partially because of you know white privilege, but also partially because I'm a boy, and partially because I was I was smart. And so I could, I could think through some stuff that was happening to me and do my own research and figure out that it was just a matter of time before I, I got away from the stuff that was making my life difficult. I mean, you know, I went through bullying in school and, you know, harassment and stuff like that, but I tend to minimize that now. And it's not because I don't think it's important, but it's because it seems like a less important part of my narrative now, now that I've gotten past it. And yeah. I think I don't want to be dominated by those stories, but yeah, they, they totally happened. I grew up in a trailer court outside of Rocky Mountain House. So, but it was, you know, in retrospect, it was a female dominated environment because all the men were out working. And so there was a lot of moms and a lot of kids and a lot of beaver dams to explore and caves and creeks. And we, we just got to run wild. So that was the good part of it. Uh, school was a challenge, but I was, I was good in school mostly until things got kind of brutal. And, uh, uh, and, and I had music. Like, oh my God, I had music and that saved me because as soon as I discovered music, I realized that there was something I could do that didn't, I didn't need anybody else for and that I could be completely independent and pursue that. And that was what kept my dreams of being something other than, you know, the little boy I kept those dreams alive. Yeah. Now, I mean, you've written about, you've written with great affection about the culture of the women in the trailer court. I mean, tra- I mean, trailer parks are a trope and a shorthand for saying, basically poor white trash, I guess. I know there's actually Um, a line in my my play, Tornado Magnet, there's actually a line that says, uh, we got a word for that out here, mobile homophobia. That's what people (laughs) seem to have. (laughs) People think that people that live in trailers are white trash. And I've heard people who know way better than that say that on Twitter and on Facebook and in social media. And I just, I always, I always, I always pipe up and say, "Uh, yeah, no, that's not the world I grew up in. What was that? cultural milieu i mean you t- described the men are the men are all out working 
Well, because I'm, it's blue collar for the yeah. most part. So the men are all on the rigs and I, you know, my dad, my dad was, you know, in the bush for six weeks at a time. Some, sometimes he also did seismic and things like that. So, but a lot of the men in the, in the trailer court were just never there. And even when in the seventies, even when rural Alberta men are there, they're not really there. They're not really there. So it was a very, it was, it was kids and moms. That's what I remember growing up is lots of moms and the moms looked up out after each other's kids. Right. And so we had to be careful because there was always eyes on us. <laughs> yeah. Like, uh, you know, a hundred sister wives. Um, totally. <laughs> <laughs> well, not quite like that. But yeah. No, but I mean, but, I mean, it, I mean, it's funny. I mean, what you're describing is almost, you know, like a like a very old fashioned village. It was a very small village. There was about, I'm going to say, 15 or 20 trailers max. And it was just one strip of little gravel road in a bluff of trees on, on the edge of a farm. And so, and it was a wedding gift that had been given to the landlady of the trailer court. And so she decided she was going to open up a little trailer court there. And we all grew up friends. My, my mom is still friends with the, with the wives that were her neighbors as we grew up. And for instance, like when mom, I'll never forget when mom was defrosting her fridge and she spilt the boiling water on her and it, it, it had scalded her. And she was just like, go next door, talk to Myrna, go grab Myrna. And we would run next door in the freezing cold and Myrna would run over. And before you know it, mom was in a car and packed off to the hospital and it was just taken care of. And, and the, you never had to worry about if the kids would like have a place to sleep or someone to look after them. There was always a place. You've written also very beautifully about what the North Saskatchewan River meant mm. for you flowing through there. Um, I mean, the North Saskatchewan River is a talisman, I think, for people who live in the, you know, in the north central part of the province. But what did that what did that river mean for you symbolically? Oh, wow. I, I think for me, even even today, I get I get kind of goosebumps when I think about it. I live less than a mile from the river now. I have lived within a mile of the river for most of my life. Uh, I love driving into Lake Abraham Lake and up to uh, the North Saskatchewan River crossing yeah. and seeing sort of where it begins. I've hiked to the top of Parker's Ridge in grade six with the field trip to see the first drips of water coming off the glacier that are the North Saskatchewan River in progress. I haven't seen this. I haven't seen as much of the, uh, the Saskatchewan part. Like I've seen yeah. it up to about North Battleford, is it? Or uh, no, I have seen it at Prince Albert, but nothing past that. But for me, it just, I mean, it's a symbol of, of my journey. <laughs> which didn't take me very far <laughs> two and a half hours away from where I grew up. It's, it's, it's a much longer canoe ride. I'm sure that it was a drive, <laughs> but, but you know, maybe, maybe physically it's not that far, but emotionally and spiritually it's, it's, it's light years away from where I grew up. And yet there's that same water flowing past every day. I, I film it. I take pictures of it. I go to it constantly for inspiration. It's, it's beautiful. So, I mean, you didn't come by canoe. But you did. No, you you but did. I have you, canoed on that river. Yes, but but you 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 did make it to Edmonton. Edmonton in the 1980s. I don't have an objective perspective of it because I was living. You know, I was coming of age in the Edmonton of the 1980s. Right. But it was this really strange time of boom and then bust, mm -hmm. and a time just as AIDS is on the event horizon of this incredible, um, you know, sexual liberation and creative energy. And, you know, the edginess and the first time I ever saw you was at Flashback where you were, you know, the queen of the club. You know, what was I doing at Flashback? I was the most tragically unhip girl in, in, in at Raw Shepherd High School. And yet, at you know, at 16 and 17, my friends and I were sneaking into Flashback underage because it was the place to be. It felt to me. And for me, it felt like the one place in Edmonton that was like a big city. Right. It was like it, the Studio 54 of the Prairie, yeah. wasn't it? Yes. So 
for the thousands and thousands of other listeners to this podcast who do not bet their misspent youth at flashback, <laughs> you know, what what was it and why was it so important to, to Edmonton's queer community, but also to the, to the city at large? Well, when I first stepped in, I, my life just changed. As soon as I saw it in front of me, I knew that this was the world that I had been looking for, which was just where there were no rules. Re- literally, there were no rules. I mean, there was enough rules to keep the place from burning down. But other than that, it was kind of just this wild, fun, amazing free-for-all. And when I meant no rules, no rules about who you had to be, right? There wasn't the boys are like this, girls are like this. There was Those rules were just gone. And so suddenly you could explore your own journey. And for me, that was just uh, this this pivotal experience. Um, but for, I think for Edmonton, it was, it was the first, I mean, it was the second bar that opened up in Edmonton. It was the first disco that opened up in Edmonton, but it was also a, a, a sort of, sorry, second gay bar and first yeah, gay yeah, bar. Yeah, we, we, yeah, we had, we had bars here we for, bars, for, for, real, yeah. for a really, really long time. <laughs> it was the first, it was the second gay bar to open up in Edmonton and the second, and the first gay disco to open up in Edmonton. And when John, I've interviewed John Reed, the owner about it, and he said that his, his, his mandate or his, his sort of goal was to create a bar where you could bring your straight friends where gay people could bring their straight friends. Cause up until that time, the only gay bar was gay exclusive. You couldn't take straight people there. You couldn't take straight friends there, even if they were supportive, even if they were allies. So it kind of created this breeding ground for this beautiful sort of new way of thinking of being around each other, where we weren't in our silos. We could actually coexist peacefully and have a great time and, and all live in that common, uh, that common freedom. Right. Uh, and then of course it became, it, it just became this huge runaway success in terms of sort of, you know, the, the underground. I mean, it broke a lot of rules. It stayed open until four in the morning. I mean, how many times did I stumble out of there in full drag and the sun was already up full and I had makeup running down my face? Because the sun comes up at four in the morning. In because the sun comes up at four in the morning in Edmonton. Exactly. <laughs> Sometimes earlier in June. And, and then, and of course, then celebrities started to come. Like I'll never, I, there's a list in the Edmonton Queen, which is my book about flashback. There's a list of some of the celebrities that were actually, if they were in town doing a concert and the concert was over and they still wanted to go out, they go, where do you go in this town? And someone would go, well, you got to go to flashback. And so we would get a call of flashback and suddenly there'd be Wayne Gretzky and Vicky Moss or the Nylons or Long John Baldry or Sarah McLaughlin or Sylvester, or I could, there's just this huge list of, of, of celebrities that made their way through there at different points in their career. And so, it was just, it was also a place where a nobody could become a somebody. And I think that's what it did for me and for many, many, many people that I know that sort of thrived in that environment where suddenly there was no rules that said you, you had to stay who you were. I'll never forget. There was this one girl, probably much like you at 16, she came into the club and we sort of looked at her and she so didn't fit in. She was wearing like a little cowboy shirt and little granny glasses. And she had that long hair, you know, like most of the girls I knew in high school that hadn't quite learned how to be, you know, fashionable yet. Right. And I watched, I remember watching her and she was just having the time of her life but she didn't fit in and I watched her change in front of me and it wasn't just a physical change although that was there too but this this spiritual change that occurred in her over the next year and a year later you wouldn't have even recognized her as the same person because suddenly she was daring and charismatic and brave and courageous and you know screw the world I'm going to be this person now and I think that was what was amazing was being able to shed the you that the world told you you were and to be able to create something new in that void you become your own creation for the yeah. first time ever, right? Because the you I first, I don't know if I would say that I met you because I think I was slightly terrified, but first of all, you were so beautiful. You were so much more beautiful and stylish than I was. And I think, damn, I still, you know, I, I still haven't learned how to put on makeup properly, right? But I mean, you just- you told, neither have I. <laughs> yeah, because you were Gloria and you, yeah. were, you, you were glorious. 
So do you remember so, what I was wearing? I'm curious. Uh, no, I just remember your hair. Okay. Um, yeah. No, I, and, and, I, and, I did love and, to show that off. And shoes in which I could like, I could not, I could not walk much less dance in the kind of shoes that you were wearing. I think they're very large. I wonder, I wonder where, <laughs> where, does, where does he get high heels in that size? Back then it was the fall, <laughs> fall crest shoes. And that's not, that's an event shopping for high heels in Edmonton in the 1980s is a, a pre-internet before you could just have them delivered to your house. That was an adventure all on its own. We were recording this on a Saturday morning. I flew, I flew home to Edmonton on flare last night and the flight attendant, and I, I don't know what their pronouns are, so I don't want to presuppose what their pronouns are, but the flight attendant was tall, over six feet, wearing a flight attendant's dress, court heels, a beautiful purple scarf around their neck and a rainbow mask. Wow. And and eyebrows for which I would crawl over hot rocks. Nice. And I thought, wow. I, I couldn't have imagined in flashback in 1980 that that this magnificent glamazon would be telling me, you know, to stow my purse in the up in the overhead bin. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we tried to imagine that world back then. But I don't think any of us imagined that that world could be so real. You know, I mean, it was real in flashback because there was there was walls to keep the ugly out. Yeah. Now, I don't mean ugly appearance wise. I mean, the, the ugly. Uh, I mean, they let me in. So, <laughs> <laughs> hey, trust me, they let me in. My first time too, so there you go. No, but to keep the ugly ideas out, to keep the hate out. But yeah. then ultimately the stuff that happened in those and it's not just flashback. It happened all over Canada in little pockets of resistance where a new world was being imagined. The new universe was being created. And it's, it's, I, I never dreamed that we would see stuff like, you know, same sex marriage equality in, in my lifetime. I mean, we all, even us activists that had our finger on the pulse thought that's just not going to happen in our lifetime. Yeah. No, I mean, cause it is extraordinary to me because you're right. It was like, I, mean, I hate that phrase safe space. I mean, it, it had that, that edge, that sense of, you know, that undercurrent of subversion and danger. Yeah. But I mean, when you were doing drag, drag was not mainstream. Drag was not being aired on television every second day. There was no um, RuPaul. There was no Will no. Grace. Divine existed, yeah. but, but, but only on screen, really. I mean, you know, like not in Edmonton, she didn't. Not in the, not in the straight bars and things like that. Yeah. That's for sure. But, you know, you made, <laughs> I'm going to kick myself for saying this, but you made the transition from drag to straight theater. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm wondering what you mean by that. Actually. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I mean, I mean, at the beginning, there was all this theater. Legitimate theater versus yeah, yes, sort of underground yeah, theater. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you were doing a very theatrical musical theater kind of presentation. Yeah. You are now an established playwright composer, you know, memoirist, director, to what extent do you think your, your legit theater career would have been possible without the drag as the, as the foundation? Oh, I don't think it would have been possible. I, it sounds so weird because I came at it from such a, an unusual angle. I didn't go to theater school. I never studied anything. Like the only artistic training I have is grade six piano conservatory um, and, and, you know, several accordions under my belt. I've never studied acting. I've never studied writing. Drag taught me everything. And here's what it taught me, because without drag, I wouldn't have known how to step outside the world and look at it objectively. That's what drag taught oh, me. Because as soon as you step into drag, your world changes, your universe changes. You pull out of the game of society and you are no longer a member. They don't want you in. And even if you go back in, there's no reward for you if you play the game their way. So what drag does is it forces you to be an outsider. 
just by its nature, or at least it did back then. Less so now, maybe I'm not sure, and I'm not qualified to say that because I don't, I don't, I'm not starting off today. But back then, it was a, it was a conscious decision that you had to make, and it had lifelong implications. And I'm still living those implications now, the way I sort of see it. I, I mean, I did drag hardcore for about, well, you know, ten or fifteen years before I started sort of moving into other directions. Even though drag followed me along all that time. But uh, I've never run out of stuff to write about because of drag. It it taught me to look at the whole world of gender uh, with a critical eye. You don't you, once you step out of the world of of the binary, you no longer accept things for what they have been presented to you as. And that's another part of that whole flashback reinvention, that place where you can actually create your own identity and your own reality without interference and without messaging from everybody else around the universe. Yeah, so in addition to your work as a, what did I say, playwright, composer, director, artistic, artistic director, I guess I should also say, because yeah, you have- you know, Queer historian too. And, queer, and that's where I was going, yeah, queer historian. Yeah. So you have been doing a lot of work recently to sort of excavate Alberta, Alberta's queer history, Edmonton's queer history in particular, but Alberta's queer history at large with you know your, your magnificent play, Witch Hunt at the Strand, with a podcast you've been doing. You're working on a documentary about the Dalwin Vreend case, which established gay rights, not just in Alberta, but all across Canada. And beyond. And yeah. And be, so, so foolish question, which obviously has an, has an obvious answer, but I bet you'll give me a better one. Why <laughs> is it so important to remember and record Alberta's gay history? Well, interestingly enough, my very first writing experience um, was in fact inspired and created because of the AIDS epidemic, uh, which I lived through and survived. And uh, when I got to the other end, I remember I started writing eulogies for funerals of drag queens that had passed away, friends of mine that I had lived yeah. through uh, the 80s with. And I'll never forget, there was one summer where there was, I, 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 this number changes, every interview you're gonna find me say a different number, but I seem to remember there was about 10, uh, about 10 funerals in one summer. And this was actually in the sort of the early 90s, like 93, 94. And, and so I started, I was often asked to write a eulogy or a short little essay or something. And so I would just share a memory. And these stories were so well received. And I'll never forget reading one at Loud and Queer once. And uh, Christy Harcourt came up to me and said- she's my, cousin, she's my cousin, you know. Oh my God, I did not know that. You did not know Christy Harcourt's my cousin? Hey, Christy. Did, how did I not know that? Oh my goodness. She never brags about it. So now I'm going to give her- Well, I, well I brag about her. I don't know. Maybe, maybe, she's, maybe she's embarrassed by me. Who knows? Oh, but she's no. way too humble to brag. <laughs> That's the thing. <laughs> she, she, is, she is one of God's best people. Oh, I totally agree. And she's one of the reasons I'm a writer because, I mean, I might've ended up there anyway, but she came out to me after reading one of the stories at a, at a reading that Candace Jane Dorsey and Timothy Anderson had invited me to. And she said, can you do me a favor? And I said, yes. And she said, keep writing. And I just thought that was such a beautiful, simple, simple, clear directive that I couldn't say no. And I, I had already considered it, but it was just that little bit of encouragement that made me keep going. Um, and so I, I, I had the chance to do my very first one person show, which was the Edmonton Queen. And so I, my very first writing pro project was actually about queer history, although that's not what I thought at the time. It yes. didn't feel like that because I was still living through it. But Candace Jane Dorsey saw the show and said, do you have more stuff like that? And I said, lots. And she said, let's talk about a book. And so without really meaning to, I became a queer history author and a, and a queer history writer, as well as a memoirist. And um, then over the years, it just is that I, I just find it so fascinating that there's all these stories 
that never got told. And so before I officially started calling myself a queer historian, I was still doing queer history work. I did a play called Pile Driver, which was about killer oh, Carl yes. Kramer, who was yes. a bouncer at Flashback, who was also a stampede wrestler who died of AIDS. And we ended up, my partner and I, Kevin, ended up with all of his archives. And so that inspired that play. I wrote a play called The Neo-Nancy's Hitler's Kick Line, which is about a bunch of SS elite guards in Hitler's Germany who were forced to do drag for a Nazi propaganda musical. These stories exist. I'm not making them up. All I'm doing is taking advantage of the fact that nobody else has told them before. And so when I actually started to sort of go down the road of actual sort of Edmonton queer history, it started actually with the university calling me up and saying, do you want to do a queer history tour? And it was two carloads of lesbians and me on a cell phone. And we sort of drove around and I, there was nothing to show. And that's when I realized there's gotta be more. I had to, my husband filled me in on some places where bars used to be and stuff, but we had Pisces and the bars and some cruising grounds yeah. and that was about it. And then the next year they actually rented me a bus and it got bigger and bigger and bigger and people on the bus started throwing in their two bits. And before you knew it, about eight years later, we had 200 points of interest in downtown alone. Then we started a South side tour. And before you knew it, that was two and a half hours long. And it's just been this cumulative, like just keep peeling away layers and there's more and there's more. And you realize that we're not just rewriting we're not just writing queer history, we're rewriting Alberta's history and Edmonton's history because it was a part of that story all along, right? Like yeah. when the Oilers rally was happening on Jasper Avenue and you know, Oilers fans were freaking out and causing mayhem and being on camera, that was the same day that the Mr. Ms. flashback party was in a limousine and they got stuck in the middle of that and a whole bunch of drag queens had to get out of a limousine and make their way through the Oilers rally to get to the bar that night for the pageant. So those, these histories were all happening at the same time. It's just that the media wouldn't report them. Or when the media did report them, it was in the most salacious, negative possible terms. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it's an interesting thing. You know, I, I, I spoke to Caden's Weapon just, a, you know, a couple of episodes ago. And he talked, you know, we talked about the fact that so often, you know, Black, Black history, Black culture in North America is always seen through an American lens or through a big city Big city lens. And so I wondered, I wanted to ask you the same kind of question about Alberta queer culture. Is there something particular and grounded in the Alberta experience that makes queer culture here different? I mean, so much of it is global. So much of it is, you know, American uh, in particular, but, you know, British, French, what have you. Right. I mean, it's, a, it's, you know, it's sort of an international fraternity and sorority. But is there something about Alberta's queer culture that is uniquely Albertan? Absolutely. One of them being that our provincial government has spent its entire existence fighting our equality. That creates a distinct society in Alberta. So, and it always upsets me whenever I see, you know, queer history of Canada. Let's talk about Toronto, Montreal, and Vancouver and ignore everybody else. It's like, well, what yeah. about the prairie queers? Like there's lots of us here, you know, Calgary and Edmonton are the fourth and fifth biggest cities in the country, but we never get mentioned in that file. But interestingly enough, the rest of Canadian queer society owes Alberta a, a, a nod of, of, of recognition. Uh, they, owe us a, they owe us a favor, frankly. They owe us a big one because it's Alberta fighting for our rights that has eventually changed the laws in Canada a lot of the time. So a few notable people who have Alberta connections, one of them being um, Ted North, who is actually, you know, grew up in the, Simon, in the Fraser Valley and, and, and was an activist in, in, um, in uh, Vancouver who eventually made association with Pierre Trudeau and, and, and helped move Bill C-150 along in 1969, which was the decriminalization, partially 
of decriminalization of homosexuality. That actually, he, he Ted North was born in Cooking Lake while his parents were on vacation. And he ended up, <laughs> him and his twin went to the Misericordia Hospital in Edmonton where his twin actually passed away. So there's, there's an Edmonton connection to the biggest sort of upheaval of gay rights in Canada. Edward, uh, uh, George Everett Clippert, who was the last man ever jailed for homosexuality in Canada, which inspired Bill C-150 in 1969, was a Calgarian who ended up passing away in Edmonton. I didn't um, know that. There's another Edmonton, I'm not going to be able to remember his name, but there's another activist who was born in Edmonton who ended up moving to the States and becoming a big American activist in the queer community in the 1950s. And then, of course, there's the Delwyn Vreen case. Yes, so without yes. the Alberta government pushing back against the Vreen decision, we never would have actually had that Supreme, we might not have had that Supreme Court decision that actually yeah. said that you need to read queer rights into all of the equality stuff. So I would say that the rest of the Canada probably, they don't realize it, but they always you know, a, a huge debt of gratitude for fighting that fight. I would yeah. say that the story of the Alberta queer community is the most important one in Canada because we didn't just have it handed to us. Whatever we have, we had to fight for all the way. Yeah. Now we I mean, are still fighting for it all the way. So, I mean, what do you think Alberta's queer community, how has it changed Alberta culture? Oh, well, I think homophobia is often easy to hide and the Alberta government is not that smart. It's not smart enough to hide their homophobia. And so I think that that has actually changed Alberta's culture because it makes, when it's so obvious that you do have to fight up, fight against it. Like a lot of this stuff probably could have bubbled under the surface untouched for decades if they had just kind of played it cool and kind of given people a little bit of rights at a time and everybody would have shut up, good little queer people, just stay quiet and we won't bug you. But in fact, they had to go so hardcore against our human rights and our equality that the fight became very visible and very loud and, 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 very, um, and very noticeable. And I think that when you see that battle happening in front of you and social media shows us this, when you finally see the truth of what's going on around you, you're more likely to actually be affected by it and maybe even to take action against it or to, to have a definite opinion and stand up against it. Yeah, because, you know, there is this stereotype about Albertans. It's the sort of the received mythos is that yeah. this is a manly man place. Yeah, you know, and it's interesting because if, I don't know. There's there's an equal and opposite reaction to stuff like that. When 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 the pendulum swings so far into the into the sort of the toxic masculinity uh, pool to sort of reinforce that image, what's going to happen is that on the other end of that 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 extreme is that queer activists are going to spring up and start to do radical work like Ronnie Burkett and Katie Lang and Brad yeah. Fraser and Attila Richard Lukash and people like that. And I think that that it could very well be that the harder that Alberta fought against queer rights, the more inevitable this battle would become. This has been the most delightful conversation. <laughs> the, 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 the whole premise of this podcast has been sort of, you know, to interrogate from different perspectives, that sense of Alberta identity and who gets to tell Alberta's stories. And I think it is so important that, you know, that you are telling Alberta's stories, that you are telling Albertan stories they need to hear about their own province making them see their province's history through fresh eyes. But I also, you know, in this podcast, I'm hoping that lots of Albertans are listening. I'm also hoping that lots of people outside of Alberta are listening to understand that we are not the one-dimensional false front stereotype that, that people see us as. Exactly. I have a theory about, or another theory, there's a line that I've been saying for a long time when people say, why, why didn't you move to a more queer-friendly province? And I said, um, I'm a product of this province. This province created me. And so this province is just going to have to deal with me. Alberta deserves me. And that 
is the most perfect place ever to end an interview. Darren Hagen, thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, happy, thank you for ha- happy Pride Month. And thank you for thank you for being one of our top 100 helpers. <laughs> <laughs> it's great to see you and to chat with you and have coffee with you. And that was my conversation with Darren Hagen, a perfect capstone for Pride 2022. Alberta Unbound is produced and edited by Caitlin Cummings and written and presented by me, Alberta Independent Senator Paula Simons. If you've enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe and leave us a review if you're thus inspired. And do check out our whole collection of conversations with fascinating Albertans about the meaning of Alberta. Merci, thank you, and hi hi.